Pages of Pim Better Podcast. What's up, Voyagers? Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 182. My guest on today's episode is Robert Yarber. He has a website and kind of like a moniker that's called Rob Does It All. I first found out about him through social media. You know, you, you click on one person, you find another, you find another. And a lot of my stuff obviously is travel themed. So I kind of go down these rabbit holes some nights where I'm just checking out all sorts of cool stuff. Rob has a really unique and wild story. As a young man, he got into some trouble and was sent to a penitentiary. And, you know, he was a young guy who like, didn't have any prior issues. Uh, it wasn't like he, he ended someone's life or anything like that. But he was sent to a maximum security prison. And he was in there with actual serial killers, like <laughs> really hardened criminals. He's got a fantastic blog series where he writes about all this stuff, and he writes about it in much more, much more in depth than we could get to in an hour on this podcast. You could spend a couple of hours reading through his, his blogs. So make sure you check out the website for that because they're really fascinating. But he went through that experience, and he went through an experience where he was selling drugs and using drugs, and he got in trouble for that too. You know, in a, in a bad situation... But since that point, he's turned his life around and he's doing incredible things. You know, I found him obviously through the world of travel and that's what he's doing now. I won't get too far into it, but he's now at this point been to over 20 countries, travels very much in a way that I like to travel real close to the bone, hostels, getting out there, interacting with people, you know, not necessarily sitting on a beach all day with a Mai Tai in hand but really having real, authentic experiences. And he shares all this through his Instagram and his social media pages, so you could find that in the show notes for this episode too. But I find his story really deeply inspiring. I mean, we're all collectively right now kind of going through something tough, uh, and that's the pandemic. But there's a multitude of things that, that people go through that make them feel defeated or make them feel hopeless. And he's somebody who overcame that and I think is really inspiring for anyone who's also going through some real hard times and some real struggle. Because you can also overcome it. And if you follow his story, I think you'll see him as a, a real model for, for changing your life and for living a full an exciting and meaningful life. So I love following his travels. I, I, I feel like he has got the personality and the storytelling ability to, to really carve out a space in the world of, of travel writing and, and travel media and stuff like that. So I'm excited to see where his story goes because I think, I think it's going to be something great. So again, as always, just go to the show notes and you can find the links to all his stuff Give him a follow. Tell him you're a voyager. Tell him that Tim sent you. And I'm really hopeful that one day in the future, when the world goes back to normal, we'll each have a couple more, you know, countries in our in our bag uh, of countries that we visited, and we could do a part two and share some stories over a beer or something like that. That'd be real cool. All right. Also, go to the show notes for this episode, and you will find a link to my Patreon account. 
you know what it is. It's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and there's some cool kickbacks like shirts and stickers and uh, some stuff from around the world. So if not, if you dig this episode or any other episode, just talking to people about it, word of mouth, sharing it on social media, that goes a very long way to getting some new eyes on it. So appreciate everybody that has done that and continues to do that. All right, Voyagers, enjoy this conversation with Rob. Is this the the first time you've done a podcast? This is. You, sir, are the very first person to have me on a podcast. Well, man, first of all, I'll say thank you. That's really exciting, and it's an honor to share your story. Like, the more I've been reading about it, I'm like, God damn, like, this could be a book. This could be a movie. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here first because I see very big things uh, in your future, Rob. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. So obviously, like, the, the world I operate in and what we talk about most often on the podcast is travel. And that's how I found out about you. Uh, but since I first saw like your social media and stuff, I've been reading a lot of your blog posts and is it okay to touch on all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, you know, that stuff is all out there. Uh, I've written it. It is now public information, public domain. So yeah, uh, that's all fine to talk about. Okay, cool. So let's, uh, let's, let's place you into this context, right? Are you originally from Virginia? Yeah, I grew up in Herndon, Virginia. Uh, Fairfax County, the DMV, a 73 area <laughs> code. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's my home right there. That's where I'm from, or in Virginia. Yeah, there's um, obviously a lot of talk going on right now in the country about uh, renaming institutions and monuments and things like that for uh, people who are quite racist in our uh, our country's history. And I saw that the the school you attended was called Robert E. Lee. Was it that was your high school? Yeah, it's funny that I was talking to, you know, I don't, I just, I don't have cable, you know, I have Wi-Fi and yeah. Netflix and, you know, Hulu, stuff like that. So I don't see a lot of, I guess, news. I guess it makes me uninformed. Uh, but a lot of the news is crazy. Sometimes you can watch the news and be misinformed. So, you know, I, I don't know. So I didn't know this, but I was talking to him. He had just got his Facebook like for the first time ever. And I was talking to him. I was like, yo, I'm going to write remember that time we were walking on the freeway, I'm going to write about this in my blog. And uh, he was like, yo, did you know that the school, the name was just changed? And I was like, when? He was like, this <laughs> week. It's like a big hot topic in the world. So I was like, oh, I didn't even know. Uh, Robert E. Lee High School, being from Virginia, everyone knows Robert E. Lee is a famous Confederate general. And when I was going to school there, he just didn't even think about it. Like the school is, is really uh, highly minority. So never really thought about it being Robert E. Lee or anything named after like that. I didn't really put the two together, but I mean, with the climate and stuff, the way it is in the world today, I mean, it definitely deserved a renaming and I'm glad they did it. I just being, you know, 16 and 15 when I was going to school there, I just didn't give too much political thought about it. Yeah. When you were a teenager, um, you were interested in sports. Is that true? Yeah. uh, I played um, high school football. I played high school basketball. Uh, won a couple AAU state championships in Virginia. Oh. I played college football at Santa Monica College. I had a scholarship and everything. And uh, 
I've had four knee surgeries to this day, two on each knee. Mm. And after the second one is when I had to retire from sports. Wow. You know, obviously, like, we all have these, like, sort of grand plans for where life will go when we're young. There was a point in my life where I was like, oh, I'm going to be a major league baseball player. And then I kind of I uh, topped off at 5'8 and stopped growing, and that dream slowly eroded away. Um, but, you know, as a, as a you know, young adult or, you know, an adolescent, is that what you wanted for, you know, your adult life? Did you think that you'd play sport professionally? Well, you know, my, my upbringing was a little different because, you know, my father played in the NFL and my father won a Super Bowl. And so I grew up around NFL players and professional athletes. And that was just my everyday reality. I didn't really think of it as anything too special or too, I mean, I knew that it was special, but I just didn't think of it as anything abnormal because like everybody I knew, everybody I was around in my circle was all, you know, in the NFL. So when I was playing sports, I always just went to the next level of sports. Just I assumed it was there. You know, when I was in uh, middle school, I just knew I would go to high school and I'd play football, I'd play basketball, you know. And when high school ends, then college is, is when you go to college. So it would just seem like the natural progression. You finish playing high school sports, you play college sports. So when I had that second knee surgery and was faced with no longer playing football, I was in Santa Monica College. I was in Santa Monica California and I didn't even I didn't really know what to do I just always assumed I just figured when you finish college football you go to professional football so I, I didn't really know anything else it was pretty tough when I had to stop playing football that's crazy who did your pop play for uh yeah Super Bowl champion with the Washington Redskins or or I'm sorry the Washington football, <laughs> football team, team. <laughs> uh Super Bowl 22 wow that's incredible um, so you played in college, uh, you know, a big part of your story is the trouble that you, that you got into initially. And when I was reading it, and I'm going to ask you in a moment if it, if it's okay for you to share that, but I, when I was reading it, I was like, this could have been any young man in America. Like show me any young man who hasn't been in a conflict or has said like, yeah, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to kick that guy's ass or something like that, or has felt like they were in a situation where they had to defend themselves. And when I was reading your story, I was like, it, it's like the flip of a switch, right? It's almost like one of those choose your own adventure books where like one minute life's going and the very next minute, everything has changed. Uh, would you be willing to share sort of uh, what happened when you were a young man and like how, how it came to be? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. Um, you know, I was a young kid. I was 20 years old and, you know, we, we were hanging out, me and my buddy, and we were hanging out. We were at a party and some girls that we knew were at that party and they were like, hey, we're going to go back to our house. There's a party over at our house. You guys should come. So, you know, we were like, all right. So we went over there and we knocked on the door. Um, you could see someone like the people, like people went dark. So somebody looked through the people and then um, they unlocked the door and they answered it. And then we walked in, there was nobody there. I did the person who opened the door. I don't know where they went. They like ran away somewhere. I, I don't know. And um, it, it turns out it was a guy was going off to the military and it was like his family's like going away party, you know, for him. And they didn't know us, but 
the girls that lived there, there was like one of them was a roommate. She knew us, so she had invited us, but it really wasn't her party to invite us to. You know, of course, we didn't know that. So when, you know, two guys show up, two strangers, and these guys, you know, they're like, who are these guys in our house? And, you know, I was trying to get to the bottom of it. Like, well, I was invited. We were invited by, you know, this woman over here. And uh, while saying that, one of the guys in the house just, like, swung at my friend and punched him and, like, knocked him on the ground. And I was like, oh, my, I was like, oh my gosh. You know, like, I was trying to talk to the people. Like, I mean, I don't want to be anywhere. I'm not welcome. And if I'm in your house and you want me to be there, then I'll, you know, gladly leave. I didn't even have a time, a chance to turn around. And then, you know, my buddy's on the ground and it just, it, it really went downhill from there. When you uh, got locked up for that, they sent you to maximum security? Yeah. Uh, the state of Oregon at the time, it was, if you had 36 or more months, then you had to be in a medium or maximum security prison. Minimum, min- even if you were minimum security level, based on the amount of time you have left, you can't be in a minimum prison. So now it's 48 months. So now I would have gone straight to minimum. But then, you know, I, I got sentenced to 48 months and I was over 36. So, you know, I was at the mercy of the state of wherever they wanted to place me. And they decided to put me in Oregon State Penitentiary, which is the only maximum security prison in the state of Oregon. Oh my God. So you had been living in Oregon at that time. You weren't in Virginia anymore. No, no, no. Um, I left Virginia after after my sophomore year at what is now John R. Lewis High School. Um, my father had a job at uh, Oregon State University, and, you know, I went over there to join him. And that's how I got to Oregon. But this is, um, this is after college. So I went to Oregon first then, but then when I graduated high school, I went down to California. Then I had gone up to Seattle, and on my way back down to California, I decided to to stay with my friend in Oregon and he had a house and, you know, we got a house together and then I just decided, you know, I was 21. I couldn't play or 20. I couldn't play football anymore. Um, I didn't really have any direction in my life at the time because I had been so wrapped up in sports my whole life since I was six. I didn't really know what to do. So I kind of just moved in with him. I got just a job. I think um, I got a job at like big five, Sporting goods and, and blockbuster video. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so I was just kind of living the 20 year old life, you know, just got a roommate, got a job, paying bills. Yeah, you know, when I opened, I said that your story could be, you know, it could be a book or a movie. And it's not to say that, you know, this, this part of your life encompasses all that you are uh, or that you necessarily, you know, want to, to publicize it in that way. But your storytelling ability, uh, is really strong. And I think that in reading through your blog posts, it's really hard not to feel empathy for the the person who's writing. And that person is you. And a lot of what you were writing about, you know, I'm unfamiliar with, and I think a lot of people might be unfamiliar with, other than their perception of what a federal penitentiary or a state penitentiary looks like uh, in, in movies and TV and things like that. Uh, and one of the things that I found really interesting was sort of the the group membership aspect of it. And it seems like almost like day one, you almost have to ally yourself with someone or else you're kind of stuck out there. Is, is that a fair description? Uh, I would agree with that. Um, prison is 
prison is a scary place, you know, and it's it's not a safe place at all. People may have the image that people commit crimes and then they get sent to prison, they get put in a cell and just, you know, a year later, two years later, whenever your sentence is up, you get out. But uh, it is a lot more to it than that. There is every every aspect of danger inside a prison. Uh, every day could be your last. Any disagreement could turn into a fight, could turn into someone trying to kill you or to a group of people trying to kill people. We don't even know. Uh, so, yeah, it is definitely like that. And you know, I grew up like I grew up sports family. I didn't have any criminals around me, no gangs, nothing like that. So I was very sheltered from that type of lifestyle. Um, so it was shocking. It was shocking to me to, to be there, to be. I remember I, I called my mom my very first day and, and I was like, I needed a friendly voice. I needed someone that like had my well-being in their heart and their care for me to just talk with me. I was scared, you know. I, I was I was very scared. Anybody say they're not scared, their first day in prison is just lying to you, right? Because it is it is very scary. And uh, she was like, "Well, you know, you're not around like the murderers and the rapists and all them, are you?" And I was like, "Yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> they're right here, <laughs> walking right past me. <laughs> Goosebumps telling you, I'm like they they're everywhere, mom. Like I'm where they at." <laughs> That's what was so crazy to me was that you're this young kid who got caught in a bad situation and there you are like you were talking about the one guy who the the happy face killer who's a like a notorious serial killer who killed eight women and like you're at one point left alone with him talking to him in a basement somewhere and it's like that is such an insane place to be for really someone who's a kid who got caught up in some in the wrong situation. Yeah, and, you know, that's, the Oregon State Penitentiary is, like I said, it's the only maximum security prison in the state of Oregon. So when you see or read, if you're in the state of Oregon and you read like the Oregonian or, you know, newspapers, such as that, and you see the crazy, you know, murders or spree killings or all the, all the bad stuff you see, Oregon State Penitentiary or OSP is where they go. So... You think that a guy has been there, you know, since I was before some of them before I was born, you know, and it, it's crazy to be to have been like literally in the basement by the clothing, by R&D, the clothing and everything, clothing room. There's no camera space in there nothing. And the uh, happy face killer is like six, 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 five. This is a big guy. You know, he's like 300 pounds. You know, he's a big guy. And yeah, that's a. Uh, Face to face, man. Talk to him for like forty five minutes, like an hour, I think. It was pretty, pretty gnarly. Yeah, it's nuts. Were you like daydreaming about what life would be when you got out? Like, were you were you planning? Were you were you thinking of goals? Well, you know, by the time by the time I went in, I was twenty two. I was on bail for a long time and trying to fight the case and trying to, you know, get the least amount of time as possible. Um, and I, I was 22 when I went, I was 26 when I got out. So, you know, that's 23rd birthday, 24th birthday, 25th birthday, 26th birthday. And I didn't really know what, I know that it seemed like life, like a lifetime, you know, my first day. And I didn't know what to expect when I got, got out. I just noticed that everyone else, you know, everyone else is living. Their lives are going on. 
there was girls I knew that didn't have any children that had three when I got out, you know, like, you know, their life kept going. And to me, I almost, in my mind, I still feel like the 22 year old kid, the 21 year old kid. And, and now I'm out and I'm 26. You're on the, you're on the other side of getting to 30. And I didn't finish my education. I almost feel like I have no life skills. I got to start completely over. I have to get a driver's license. I have to get a car. I have to get a job. Uh, you know, I didn't have many plans. I was just really trying to get my head above water. When you were, uh, well, early in life, I guess, had you traveled much at all? No, my family, we never traveled. We traveled across the, like the country, the state. Um, you know, I never had any role models growing up as far as traveling. Mm. It just wasn't something that felt like a reality to me. And although we were very well off and I had everything I could ever want, I had like an amazing childhood. My parents are wonderful people. You know, my mom's my biggest fan. My father's the wisest man I've ever known. I mean, if I was, if I was half the man that he is, I'd be twice the man that I am, you know? So I look up to them a lot, but they grew up themselves in very di different uh, environments than yeah. what they allowed me to grow up in. So it wasn't even in their mindset to be like, let's go to another country. My mom's just now getting her passport for the first time. Like it's to be in the mail any day for us. It was like, you know, we're going to go to you know Virginia beach. We're going to go visit uh, family in California. And we'll go to like the grand Canyon, Vegas, things like that. Go to the beach, stuff like that. Yeah. I had a pretty similar, uh, like relationship to travel where, I don't think my dad ever left the country until he was like 50, right? So he had a pretty, like, I guess, working class family. His parents were immigrants who immigrated from Germany. Uh, and, you know, it was not, he always talks to me about how like, well, this was never even something we thought about. Like there was no internet. There were no like real guidebooks. Uh, the world has just been opened up in ways that it wasn't at that time. And so we would go to like Lake George in New York or down to, down to Virginia. We had cousins and like that that was a big trip. Um, when, when did the, the idea or the desire to, to go abroad, when did that, you know, come into your mindset? Well, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about it and like I said, my, my parents grew up very differently than they allowed me to grow up and they were able to, uh, enable me to grow up, you know, um, they didn't have a lot of money, they had a lot of siblings. There wasn't a lot to go around. Uh, both of my parents are the first in their families to graduate college. And so it takes a mindset. I was just saying, like, when did I decide I wanted to go abroad or stuff like that? It takes a particular mindset. And you can have all the money in the world, all the op opportunity in the world. You can have all the nice things, a nice house, a nice car, provide your family for everything. And, you know, and that's a living. And that's what it was. It takes a whole different mindset to be like, you know, I want to go travel. I, I think the main, the first thing that really hit me was I didn't know anything about traveling and I didn't know anything about traveling abroad. So I didn't know how much it cost or anything. I always thought that like rich white kids travel to Europe and stuff, you know, I like, Oh, they graduate high school and they have like a European, like the, like the movie Euro trip. Yeah. You know, that, that's what I thought. So I remember I was working, I was a server uh, at a brewery in Corvallis, Oregon. And there was a girl that worked with me. Her name was Sydney. And she went, she went to like Australia or the UK. She went somewhere. 
And so she had a few weeks off and she came back and she was telling me about her travel. And I was like, you went to, let's just say it's Australia. You know, I'm like, you went to Australia? Well, but we work at the same job. Yeah. And I have more hours and make better, more tips than you just because I've worked here longer. So I have better shifts. So, you know, I'm like, I, 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 I think I make more money than you. But yet you're traveling all over the world. I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, it, it didn't even seem possible to me. And Sydney is the first person that ever made it seem like a reality, like something that could be done. You know, she would tell me, you know, you're over here spending uh, hundreds and uh, eight hundred, $1,000 at the Nike employee store, the Adidas employee store, the Stripe Life. Um, but you could be taking that money and going to other countries, you can get round at the time, you know, like you could get round trip tickets to Panama, Belize for 450 bucks. And I was just like, wait, what? So that really started to put into my mind that I wanted to travel. I wanted to travel, but I didn't really know what to do. I, uh, I got my passport, but I didn't know again, still where to go. And then a friend of mine, my childhood friend Marcus, he was getting married in Dominican Republic. And he wanted me to be a groomsman and the MC at his wedding. So that's what got me. That's the first time I ever left North America was going to the Dominican Republic. And when I saw the other culture, the other people, I traveled and I flew and I was like in, you know, by eBay and La Romana and all these places, like dancing with the people. It, just, it changed my life forever. It changed me. It's funny how you talk about sort of the prioritizing aspects of your life. I, I, I think you know this, but I work in education and I have one of those like scratch off maps in my office where you go to a country, you scratch it off or whatever. And last year, a kid came into my office and was like, whoa, Vetter, like you've been everywhere. You're rich. And I'm like, no, I'm not rich, but I don't have a car. <laughs> I don't have cable. I don't have a mortgage. I don't buy expensive clothes and expensive shoes and have, you know, children of my own. Like... These are sacrifices you make in your everyday life because, you know, money is quite limited, but you can travel very easily on a budget if you're willing to also, like, give up certain comforts. Well, yeah, I went to, I was, uh, where was I? I was in Berlin, right? And I stayed at, I forget the name I want. I don't want to get it wrong. But I stayed at this hostel that, it's like a famous hostel. They have them in all these different countries that, and they also have a bar like connected to them. So like a bar and a restaurant. So when you stay at the hostel, you get like 50% off of the food and like happy hour, you might get extra drink. You get, you know, little benefits like that. And I'm in Berlin and I don't have a lot of money. Like I travel on a shoestring budget. Uh, I just want to see the world. You know, I want to see all the things that are free, but if it costs 15 euros to get in, well, I would take a picture out front. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I would go and I'd get lunch at the bar and I'd, just, I'd get like a fat burger, a bunch of food, give me like two Pilsners and it'd be 50% off. And that might be the only thing I eat all day. And I would just go, I would just walk around. Like I just go see stuff. So I don't have a lot of money. It just has to be your intention. It has to be what you want to do. Instead of buying those new retro Jordans that came out, hey, I want those Jordans too. But I also want to see like, I want to go places. I want to see things that I only, I've only ever seen on TV. Yeah, we've we've got that similar mindset. Uh, a big, you know, a big influence for me. I talk about him all the time. But was Anthony Bourdain? Uh, was there like a, a particular place 
or person who helped inspire it? Or was it that initial trip to the Dominican Republic? Well, like I said, uh, in order, it was, it was Sydney yeah. making it seem real to me. And it was, uh, you know, my boy Marcus basically making me come out there because, you know, I can't miss this. Is my childhood friends, my day ones, we like six years old. Uh, I, I, I won't, I will not miss his wedding. So if I got to go to Dominican Republic, I just got to go and I got to figure it out. And, um, uh, I'm sorry. What was the rest of it? <laughs> no, I think that answers it. I was just wondering about like a particular influence that, you know, you. Oh yeah. 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 So Anthony, Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain. Okay. See, so it's 2020, 2019, 2018, you know, this is the times now. So you can pull up YouTube and you can look up stuff. You know, like the difference when, you know, my parents were growing up and there's no internet, there's no nothing. So to be like, hey, do you want to go to France? It's like, France? I'm going to go to France. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, so now you can just look stuff up. So I go to YouTube and I look up uh, top 10 things about, say, Paris, France, or top 10 things about Germany. Or I look, I want to watch things to show people going places. I look on Instagram a lot, look up the hashtags, look up the location. And Anthony Bourdain, pardon me, Anthony Bourdain's TV show was something because this was a man that was literally getting paid to travel around the world and eat awesome food and see cool things. And I copied his exact thing. I went to London. If you look up the TV show, what is it, Parts Unknown? I think it's Parts Unknown. When he goes to London, because I was going to London, and I was like, well, let me see what Anthony Bourdain did when he went to London. And he had a, a scotch egg at the Princess Victoria. And watching... It, I don't just, I never even heard of a scotch egg, but watching it being made and looking at it, it's like, it's like a hard boiled egg, uh, dipped in like, uh, breading and stuff, deep fried. It was, it was amazing. And I was like, I have to have this egg. <laughs> and when I got to, no, I'm not even kidding. When I got to London, I stayed at this hostel, hostels everywhere. Right. Um, that egg at princess Victoria was more, literally, was more important to me than seeing Buckingham Palace, seeing Big Ben, seeing any of that. Like, when I got there, I was like, so what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to go to the Prince of Victoria and have a scotch egg. <laughs> People were like, what? Like, no, that's it's... your first thing? And I was like, yeah. And it took me 45 minutes to walk there from my hostel and 45 minutes back. And I had me a scotch egg and a Guinness, and it was, it was lovely. No, that's like when I'm when I'm overseas and people talk about New York because I've lived in New York my whole life and they're like, oh, like, have you seen the Statue of Liberty? Have you seen the Empire State Building? I'm like, well, yeah, but like if you come to New York, you got to go to a deli and you need to get like a bagel with locks yeah. because that is New York. Or like you need to go to a corner store and get like a, a bacon, egg and cheese in the morning because like that is what New Yorkers are doing. Like we're not really going to the Empire State Building. So I totally... Uh, I mean I totally get that. I grew up outside Washington, D.C. I'm Herndon's Northern Virginia, right? I grew up right outside Washington, D.C. I've been to D.C. a million times in my life. All of our field trips have been to D.C. I don't think there's one picture in existence of me standing in front of the Washington Monument yeah. or uh, Lincoln Memorial or anything. Uh, I don't have any clothing that says Washington, D.C. or you know, like I don't have any of that stuff. It's supposed to like tourists. Was it, uh, was it Germany or the U.K. Uh, where you first traveled by yourself? Well, uh, it was actually Amsterdam. Okay. Um, before, so by the time I was getting to Europe and crossed the pond for the first time, 
I had been to, I had been snowboarding in Whistler in Canada and British Columbia. I had been to Mexico a bunch of times, even, you know, I have times I went to Mexico. I don't even remember. People go, remember that time I went to Mexico? And I'm like, what? We went to Mexico together? It was when you didn't need to have a passport. I was going to college in Southern California. You could just go to Mexico for the night, drink, and come back. Um, and I, I had gone to Alaska to become Bering Sea Fisherman. And Bering Sea Fisherman, deadliest catch. Yeah, like I did that. And that's how I earned the money to go to uh, Europe. And it's crazy because I had this thought in my mind that I wanted to live abroad. I wanted to leave the States. I wanted to see the world. Uh, and I wanted to move to Norway. I, my opinion, in my opinion, I determined Norway to be the best country in the world as far as uh, education, healthcare, safety, the location. Uh, Yair in Svart Norske Viking means I'm a black Norwegian Viking. Like I love the cold and in Norwegian, you know, of course. Um, I love the cold. I love all of it. it. It's safe. If you were ever to have a family, it would be a great place to raise your kids. They would know multiple languages. They would be really smart. I mean, I set the bar really low. So my kids, so it'd be really easy to be better than me, you know? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I just, uh, I took my, I took my money from Alaska and I just went and uh, people were like, do you know anyone in Norway? And I was like, no, you ever been to Norway? No. You have a job in Norway? No. Have you ever <laughs> been to Europe? No. <laughs> it seems so mad now. But I packed my bag, packed my suitcases, and I was like, look, Americans, you got 90 days on Schengen. You can go to Europe for 90 days before you have to leave. So I got 90 days to figure it out. And I went, and I went to Amsterdam because, you know, when you're a kid, when you're younger, Amsterdam is like, you know, the place. Although being in Oregon and weed's legal recreationally right. and all of that, smoking weed in Amsterdam isn't like the appeal not to or Oregonians or people that live in uh, states that have recreational marijuana. But I still wanted to go. I wanted to see the red light district. I want to see the supposed to be naked women in windows. You know, I'm just a guy, you know, like I'm just a regular guy. I want to see this stuff. But that's why I went first. I'm going to come back to Norway because there's a few things I'm fascinated about. But I have to hear what the experience was like fishing in Alaska. That must have been crazy. Oh, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so I was, I was dating a woman, and we were going to have a child. And the child died. Oh, man. And uh, it really hit me really hard, and I went into a, a, a deep depression. And uh, I was, uh, like, being really self-destructive as far as substances and just, just uh, I was not, I was living my worst life. And uh, not only was I not there for her when she needed it, I wasn't even there for myself. And uh, I needed to get away. I needed to, I needed a fresh start somewhere. And uh, I heard about a job in Alaska. And I'd never been to Alaska, you know, the last frontier or all that. Seems cool, super cold, Arctic Circle. You know, I love adventure, you know, hashtag Rob Ventures. <laughs> you know, and I was like, uh, let's do it. And I got there and uh, it was a real kind of a bait and switch. Uh, the company flew you out there and said, I talked about the, all this adventure and stuff. And we're at Dutch Harbor. We're, we're on the island, Dutch, on Alaska Island in Dutch Harbor, which is where the TV show Delia's Catch is filmed and all that stuff. And uh, I get there and it's like a factory, it's a cannery. You're, you know, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with someone for 12 hours a day. Uh, I quickly realized I was not going to make the money to uh, get to Europe. 
I was not going to get the money to get a fresh start to be someone new, somewhere new. And I was at a bar in Dutch Harbor, which is so random. It's called the Norwegian Rat Saloon. <laughs> I, I, I can't even make it up. It's like I'm at this bar and uh, some people come in and they're looking for a guy on their boat. And it was like the, my dare to be great moment of my life that I was so scared. I was so nervous. I went to talk to these guys and I'd never been on a boat before. Never done this job before. I never even seen Deadliest Catch before. I still to this day have never seen it. And I lived on a boat in the Bering Sea for like a while. And uh, I just knew that this was my opportunity. I felt like in life that this was the opportunity being presented before me to 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 make something new of myself. And so I took it, and it was it was hard, man. <laughs> the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so at, at that point, were you like living at sea? Yeah, you live on the boat. Um, you live on the boat and work. We work like twenty hours a day. Like this is this is extremely hard. I I never knew anyone that fished. Never seen anything about it. So I didn't know. I just I just told the guy the, the deckhand or the deck boss and the first mate. I was like, if it just comes down to hard work and it's not something that needs a specialized skill, I can do it, and I will do it because you don't know how bad. I'm trying to get to Norway. Like I just, it's like, it's like my, it's like my dream, you know? So whatever I got to do to get there is what I'm going to do. And, uh, seasick, puking, Ugh. diarrhea, fever, everything you can imagine. It was the worst. It, it was, it was the worst. It, I mean, working on a boat, especially in the Bering Sea, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. You know, there's only probably about 1% of the world that is willing to do that job. And of that one error can do that job. And of that 1%, probably only half of them <laughs> want to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's really wild. So when you, when you went to Norway, you've got the 90 days, right, before you either have to, like, get a visa or, or leave and come back. Did you go thinking sort of like, I'm going to go indefinitely, or did you have a plan for returning? No, I bought a one-way ticket. I did not nice. have a plan for returning. I just, I wanted to go, you know, you got to understand like where I was coming from in my life. I was in a depression. Um, you know, I was on drugs. I was, it was just, it was very bad. I was living a very bad exi uh, existence. And to me, I wanted to change that. You know, I don't think anyone in that type of situation is, is happy being in that situation. And I definitely was not myself. So, you know, I bought a one-way ticket. And I, I Googled, I, I did it intentionally. I, I Googled um, where, where are the happiest countries in the world? You know, with me, it wasn't about money. Of course, you need money to do the things that you want to do in life, but money doesn't motivate me. So it wasn't like, you know, I didn't want to chase money. I wanted to chase happiness because I just ultimately, I just want to be happy in life. So I was looking up places where people are happy, where, you know, where the where are the best places to live? Where where can you go to university for free? Where can you become you know more, more educated? Where can you have a better life? If you add health, happiness, education, that's going to improve anyone's life. And where I was at in life, it, it wasn't going to take much to improve my life. So you know, I was like, man, I I, I want to go, I want to go, and I went with that one way ticket, and I just I figured I would I would figure it out. I would have to figure it out. <laughs> 
because my life depended on it. Yeah, it looks like you like really plugged yourself into like multiple ventures while you were out there. Was it? Did you go to to bartending school in Norway? No, I actually went to bartending school in Dublin in Ireland. Oh, okay, and um, I had been bartending, but I was trying to get a visa to Norway and. You know, apparently I picked the right country because it is extremely hard to get into Norway. <laughs> and uh, I think for good reason. You know, here I was, just a guy that had never been anywhere, never traveled. Um, and I determined that Norway was the best country in the world to me. So I really wanted to get in. Of course, man, you know, if there's a party going on, good and it's happening. I want to get next. To, I want to rub shoulders with the people having a good life, having happiness, right? Um, so... You know, my visa got denied and then I appealed it and I I was just looking at it like, okay, well, Norway wanted me to have on paper, like certificates and things that show like, okay, I've been doing this for a long time, but what shows your proficiency in it? You know, anyone can get behind a bar, but not everyone can be a good bartender. So what's your proficiency? Just because you've worked for five years, you know, maybe you're, you know, your friend is the owner and they don't want to fire you. So I ended up, I had to go to Ireland to European bartender school to get those certificates so that it was all, it was like all roads lead to, all roads lead to Rome. For me, all roads lead to Norway. So it was like everything I was doing was trying to improve my, my case to the Norwegian government. <laughs> so how did you use that skill? Were you like, you know, working at, at hostels and things like that? Oh, uh, I mean, just working in bars, um, and, I mean, it's, it's really the same. I mean, I learned a lot. European bartending school is the number one bartending school in the world, like in the world. And it is like, I recommend it to anyone trying to be a bartender, anyone trying to travel the world, anyone wanting to meet people from other countries. Like I'm telling you, I recommend, I stand behind European bartending school. It completely changed my life for the better. I got lifelong friends. Like it's everything they said it was. And I was super skeptical because I'm, you know, American and I'm like, well, I'm going to go to another country, do some bartending school. I think, I saw them on like Instagram or Facebook or something like my phone was listening to me because all of a sudden an ad popped up for them. And I was like, I'm going to send these people like two grand and they're going to steal my money. I'm going to fly to Ireland and it's going to be like an empty building. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny thinking about it now. But yeah, I, I did all of that and I learned so much. And I bartended in dive bars. I bartended in three different countries in the world. I bartended in fancy cocktail bars. And uh, yeah, I owe a lot to them. That's awesome. I saw that you also, uh, you were doing some acting. Was that also in Norway? Yeah, see, you know, it's funny when I talk to people, like I'll talk to you right now about it, because it does seem pretty fantastical. But like, it was just like my life I was living. You know, I got into acting. I had my second knee surgery. I couldn't play football anymore. And I'm already in Los Angeles. Like, I'm in Hollywood. And, you know, I was working at Blockbuster Video. I remember a moment I was sitting on my couch and had my, my leg is wrapped up and or my knee is wrapped up and it's being iced and I'm watching and I was watching uh I was watching Bad Boys Two on VHS on VHS tape, please be kind, rewind. <laughs> and I was like, Now don't get me wrong, Will Smith is a excellent actor. But Will Smith is not acting in every single one of his movies. You know, uh uh, pursuit of happiness, seven pounds, 
uh, things like that. These are movies in which Will Smith is acting. Yeah. Movies like, you know, uh, Hitch and uh, Bad Boys. I feel like that's just Will Smith, the man, yeah. reading the word. <laughs> right? So I was like, man, this guy's going to pay $20 million for a movie. I just, I think I can do that. And maybe there was ignorance or arrogance or whatever, but I was like, I really think that I could do that. I think I got the personality for it. I think I could be, you know, I think it could be something I could do. And, you know, it's funny in high school, you think of like drama geeks and people that do theater. Like as far as coming from like the jock standpoint, you didn't think they were cool. But when you get to Hollywood, outside of sports, actors are the coolest people around. So I went to acting school. I went to the Baron Brown Actor Studio in Santa Monica. So I, I did get officially trained. And, um, and I started to pursue that. And that happened in Hollywood. So it was funny coming back around being in Norway because I just went to Norway to live there. Like, I just wanted to live a better life. It's much like if a, a, ta- a doctor from India comes to America and becomes a, a taxi driver. It's because he, he is doing that and taking that demotion and status because he wants a better life for himself and for his family and his future generations. And that's what I was doing. I mean, I would have been happy cleaning toilets in Norway if I had the opportunity to live in Norway. So the fact that it all came back around, it's just a blessing. It's like life. I don't know. Life was hitting me with things that I was prepared for. And uh, I was given an opportunity and I made the most of it. That was for an energy bar in Norway. Yeah, that was for a, it was for a protein bar. Protein bar. That's it. Yeah. Hunky peanut, hunky (laughs) peanut protein bar from Maxim Norga. Uh, y'all need to go check them out. Maxim Norga, N-O-R-G-E. That's how you spell Norway and Norwegian. And uh, yeah, it was like the biggest, one of the biggest uh, commercials in all of Norway. And definitely for that business conglomerate, it was the thing they put the most money behind. It was like newspaper articles and industry trade sheets and, and everything. It was unique because it's, it's a commercial in Norway, but it's in English. So that's already unique. And then it stars not just someone who speaks English, but an American, but like a black American. They're like, yeah, a black American and also a Norwegian man in this commercial. So it's unique for a lot of different reasons. And the production company was Yellow Banana. And they're really the ones, because they're the ones that talk to Max and Norgan. We're like, hey, we have a vision for what we want this commercial to be. And so without Yellow Banana, without Max and Norga, I mean, this stuff just doesn't happen. I was just in the right place at the right time and just try to capitalize off that. Was it around this time that you thought like, hey, maybe my story is one that's like really worth listening to and something that could inspire people? Is, is this when you started to, to blog and to do the website? No, that, that stuff came later. Um, I, was, I was visiting my mom in the States. She lives in Oregon. And I had a job at the Columbia Employee Store. It was just a seasonal job. I wanted to get, I really wanted to get Christmas gifts for my mom and my family and my friends. And I wanted to get some passes to the store, you know, and I used to work for a couple of weeks and I was visiting and I met a guy uh, by the name of Dwayne. Um, I met him and uh, he is senior management with Columbia. And that's also, I'm, I'm not going to lie. That's also why I want to work at the Columbia employee store. Cause I wanted to come into contact with the Columbia employees. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> now that the cat's out of the bag. Honestly, I really wanted to be paid 
to like travel the world. Of course, you know, yeah. Like, adventure and to be given free gear and to go travel and like take pictures in Columbia gear. I mean, that was the idea, you know, it was you know, a grandiose idea, but I did meet him and I showed him some of like, you know, my commercial. I did a couple films in Norway. So uh, he was like, man, and your life, your, just the traveling was a story by itself. And then he was like, when you add to it, your, your past and your history of having gotten in trouble, having been on drugs, having been in prison, having turned your life around, you know, being the underdog and having come out, you know, with a second chance and a second act that is, is pretty cool. He's the one that was like, you should do it. You should create a website. You should like blog about it. You should, I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. I had to look it all up and then I'll figure it out. Have you been able to, uh, you know, travel at all during COVID? Like, were you already on the road or have you been home in, in Oregon for the while? Well, no, I, so this year, this year I've been in London. Uh, so I've been in uh, England. I've been in Ireland. I went to Paris. Uh, I've been uh, Los Angeles. I went to Mount Rainier, Washington. Nice. And then here now in Oregon. So I've been around, um, but COVID really shut everything down. You know, my visa application sitting on someone's desk. The government shut down the Brugeri, which is brewery in Norwegian, where I was working in Oslo, shut down. You know, they're not open. They're still not open to this day right now. And um, so I, I was out of options. You know, my time was up and I, I had to leave. I, I couldn't stay. So, you know, I left and I've been here kind of like plotting my return. I was like, okay, I, you know, I got all certificates. I got everything. Now I just got to find a job because in Norway is a little bit different. Like you have to have a job offer in a written contract before you can apply for a work visa. Mm. You can't say like, I, I want a work visa and try to find a job. And as you would know, being just a person that, you know, if someone's resume or CV comes across your desk, you never met them. And you're like, okay, some guy from Tanzania wants to be on, you know, wants to be your assistant on your podcast, you know, in the States. And you're like, I mean, why would I like there's a million people in New York already? Like, why would, so it's extremely hard. Yeah. You really kind of have to go there, make connections, meet people, impress someone, then get a contract. Then you have to leave, which I did not know. I tried to apply from within Norway, which is it's not what you're supposed to do. So that got denied again the second time. And um, so, yeah, so now that's kind of where I'm at. I have to go back to Norway. I have to get a job contract. I have to get an offer. Then I have to come back to the States. Then I have to pay $600 to apply for a visa. Oh, and then once it's approved, I can go back. So is that the goal then to, to live in Norway and to use that as like sort of like a launching point to get to other countries? I know it seems funny now because I've been to, I've been to what, 21 countries now. And a lot of these countries were kind of like on the way. Um, I wanted to get to Norway. And when you're in Europe already, if you imagine the United States as being, instead of different states, every state was a country, it'd be pretty easy, especially being over there on the East Coast, it'd be pretty easy to, I mean, what, just being from Brooklyn or being in Brooklyn, you could... Or I guess you're in Harlem. Or where are you? I, I live in Brooklyn, yeah. Okay. Well, being in Brooklyn, I mean, well, you got an hour drive. You could be in Philadelphia. You could be in New Jersey. Maybe all, I mean, you could do all this stuff in the same day. And that's what Europe is like, too. I've had breakfast, lunch, and dinner in three different countries twice. Um, so when you're there, it's really easy to, to just travel. But I didn't, I didn't consider all the travel possibilities 
Like so I was just trying to be happy and these things were just presenting themselves and I was just taking advantage. Do you though have, uh, do you either dream about or, or have goals for, uh, you know, visiting another continent or do you have any like bucket list countries? Uh, I didn't, I didn't really then besides, you know, the one, um, but now you know, having met, now having met people from all over the world, having uh, met people in that bartending school that are my friends and they live in all sorts of different countries. I mean, you know, I want to go to Austria. I, I just think Austria is beautiful. I look it up on, you know, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, I want, I really want to go to Croatia. Croatia is right there along the water. Uh, a lot of these things, I think you would average American. Uh, we'll put it this way. I heard a joke in Amsterdam. The guy says, if you speak three languages, what are you? So I was like, okay, you know, it's trilingual. He's like, well, if you speak two languages, what are you? I was like, bilingual. He's like, if you speak one language, what are you? And I was like, well, he's like, American. Yeah. <laughs> right? So uh, I, you, you just don't really think about these places. You know, you think of the things you see in the news. And like, I went to Israel and I expected the Middle East and things like that to be like bombs everywhere and, and like disarray. And it was beautiful. You know, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, like go to Israel. Israel is beautiful. Um, you know, if you can get to Palestine, go to Palestine too. Um, go, go check out, go check out these people. And so I've been going to places and they're being wonderful. And so now, yeah, I would think if I had a top five, it would be Croatia, Austria, Japan. I want to go to the arcades in Japan. Uh, <laughs> that's the only reason I want to go to Japan is go to arcades. It looks fun. Um, Australia for sure. We go surfing in Australia, and uh, I really want to go to Belize. I want to take my mom to Belize. How was the the like the travel scene in Israel and like the hostel and backpacker scene? Was it easy to do? Yeah, uh, it was amazing, right? So I get to Tel Aviv and I check into my hostel, and the guy checking me in that works there is this white guy from North Carolina, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like. What? So hostels, how they, a lot of them is how they work is they work with volunteers. So you go to a hostel and you stay there. And then if you're, if you express interest in wanting to stay longer or to work there, you can volunteer at the hostel in exchange for, you know, free room and board. So when you go to these hostels around, people are from everywhere. I mean, you know, I was in Corvallis, Oregon, which is where Oregon State University is, go Beavs. Go Beavers, and I'm in uh, London, and the girl that works at the hostel in London is from Eugene, Oregon, University of Oregon, right? And I'm like, what? Like it just so it's it, hostels are very traveler friendly. You you have different types of hostels. You have ones that are for um, solo travelers that are looking maybe to meet new people or to have a uh, you know have a good time, go to the clubs, drink, party. You know, you have those type of environments. You have other hostels and those, those hostels have, uh, some of them have age limits that you can't be over 40 and stay there or something like that. And then you have other ones that are a little bit more quiet. And if you're trying to like travel somewhere for cheap and like get your work done or something like that, you know? So yeah, but hostels are, are cool places. I, I recommend staying in hostels. They're awesome and cheap. 
Yeah, I guess I'll plug like Workaway too. Like there's a lot of folks from the States who will sign up for Workaway and you can work at a hostel and they'll cover your your room and board for as long as you work there. And then like obviously on the times you're not working, you can go out and explore that that city or that town or whatever and use that as a as a launching pad to get to other places. Um, yeah, that's, that's a pretty sweet setup. Um, you know, one thing that I never really realized, uh, and this is, I think, part of privilege, right, is that you don't, you don't realize a lot of things. So I grew up in a predominantly white suburb and we like international travel was never really something that we thought about, like I talked about earlier. Um, but from like a, a financial standpoint, not necessarily from a representation standpoint. But when it came time for me to travel around the world, like I, I never second guessed it. But now that I'm an adult and through the podcast, I've been exposed to people from all around the world. Um, through work, I have a lot of colleagues and associates and friends now who are black Americans. And a lot of folks will say, well, I don't, I don't know if I can go to that place. Like you mentioned Norway, like if I go to Norway, am I going to see anyone who can associate with me or anybody who looks like me? Did you feel any of that sort of like trepidation or nervousness before traveling? Uh, I, I didn't. It wasn't at the forefront of my mind. Uh, I, I, not to be, you know, I'm a very open-minded individual. Uh, we've already spoken about and has, you'll read more about robdesitall.com, um, that I've been in a lot of different environments and a, a lot of, uh, I've been exposed to a lot more than your average person. You know, I've been exposed to now, um, I've been exposed to drug dealers, drug users, criminals, murderers, rich people, poor people, homeless people. Like I've been a clean and sober living. I've been, uh, Oxford houses, uh, rehab, all these different places where I've seen a lot of different people. So I've gotten to see people at their best. I've gotten to see people at their worst. I've experienced my own self at my worst and at my best. And so I had never really thought about it because like, let's see. If you got somebody in your family or somebody that you know, and most of us do, and they're struggling with some type of addiction, whether it be drug addiction, it could be alcohol addiction, it could be codependency, it could be mental, um, mental health issues. A lot of people have those things. And sometimes you see people in their worst and you'd be like, you know, like if you've seen, you know, a junkie going down the street, you'd be like, well, you know, don't ever end up like that person, you know, and this is this person at their worst. You don't know anything else about them. You know, someone out there loves them or cares for them at some point. Um, so you could get down on them. You could think that people will never be anything other than an addict or something like that. But I, I want to show people that you can be more than an, than an addict. You can be something great. So I, I always had a vision of people differently. So when I go to other countries, I never, you know, I never think about if the people of this country like black people or don't like black people or do they like Americans or not like Americans or, you know, like I'm in Israel and they hate Palestinians, you know, I'm in Palestine, they hate Jews, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, you know, like I, I never thought of things of that, like in that way. So, you know, I, I don't, maybe sometimes the energy you put out that could be uh, responsible for the energy you receive back sometimes. So, you know, when I like, got to Norway, you know, I was just 
you know, I was starry eyed, like, <laughs> I'm happy to be there. You know, like, I'm not trying to cause no waves. I'm so excited. I'm so happy to see everything. To me, I didn't experience any racism in Norway. Uh-huh. Uh, to me, I was really shocked actually to find out that Norwegians, much like Americans, uh, there's black Norwegians, there's Hispanic Norwegians, there's Asian Norwegians, there's African Norwegians. I mean, you know, Norwegians are just Norwegians. Mm. They're not black, they're not white, they're not Asian. They're just Norwegian. You see 10 people over there from Norway and eight of them are white, one of them is black and one of them is Asian. They're not going to say, oh, eight white, one black, one Asian. They'll just be like, yo, there's 10 Norwegians over there. So, yeah, I I didn't see it as any type of issue. What do you think it is that makes Norway so happy? I mean, right now that we feel like here in the U.S., like one of the most unhappy countries in the world. Um, Is it all like the, like you mentioned, some of like the social programming and supports and things like that from the government? Do you think that's part of it? I mean, I think so. If you were to look it up now, you know, I, I think on uh, like most everyone's list, uh, the Norwegian, they have a socialist democracy kind of, um, but it, it is recognized by a lot of people as the closest thing you can have to a perfect government. Mm. And, you know, you pay a lot of taxes and I mean, because obviously none of that stuff is free. Like when I say free healthcare, free education, it's not free. It's paid for by the citizens right. of Norway. And, but it, there's a pride, you know, there's a pride to it. Like in America, you know, we don't always know where every, every dollar is going. You know, when, uh, if a, if a Senator or Congressman from your state wants to fly somewhere, he's going to fly a private plane and do all this. And this is where your tax dollars are going to, you know, if he has a meeting in another country, you know, I was like, well, why does my local Congressperson have a meeting in any other country? Like you'd be focusing <laughs> on where we are, you know, but we pay for all those things. And we don't know where all those dollars are going. In Norway, when you get taxed heavily on your earnings, well, first you earn a living, you earn a living wage. So that that's one. So you don't, you're not so worried about a lot of the bills like that because where you work, you will be afford, you'll you'll be able to afford a place to live. You'll be able to afford a life. Um, so you know, there's that. And then, like, I had knee surgery in Norway, and. Oh. I had my fourth knee surgery in Norway, my fourth, and that was out of pocket. If I had no insurance, it would have been $2,000 at a private clinic. And my third knee surgery was $35,000 in America. And it was this God exact damn. knee surgery. Yeah, it's crazy. So, <laughs> so you know, you have that. Uh, so, you know, and when you offer things like public universities in Norway being free all the way through your master's degree, uh, and then the social programming of um, maternity leave and paternity leave, paying paying, uh, paying you 100% of your salary for a certain amount of time, then 80% of your salary for the rest of the time. And that's just to be home and be a parent, like just to have a happy family unit. There's a lot of things that I was scoping that I felt like Norway was doing right. It was a lot of things that I wanted to be a part of. And I mean, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, your own personal opinion, but I believe if, if you're happy, healthy, educated, you're going to live a better life, you know? And, and when you're in Norway and it's, you know, uh, it was kind of foreign to me because I'm like, so your government like loves you, likes you, wants you to be happy, healthy, educated, wants you to travel, like cares about your well-being. I, I just, what, what? 
What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, that seems uh, really foreign to what's happening in our country right now. Um, yeah, yeah. So you know, so it's like imagine this is a pride. You know, if you know that your tax money went to your neighbor who needed to have a knee surgery and was able to have it because of your tax money. If uh, the, the mother down the street was able to not worry about if she was gonna, you know, have to have a child and then go back to work like three weeks later you know, because she has to earn money to have to live, you know, when you don't have those type of worries and stresses and pressures, I think, I think it, that, that is like paving the road to happiness. Yeah. Well, I'm going to link obviously to the website, Rob, and everyone listening knows you just go to the notes and there's a direct link to get there. Uh, you could spend a few hours just exploring your blog posts about your past life, which I think are really fascinating. But uh, to also, you know, follow your social media accounts so that they can follow your travels. One of the things I love is that you really reinforce what I talk about on here all the time, and it's just like, just just take the plunge. It, it's a weird sort of serendipity that happens where it's like if you put yourself out there or you, you travel to a country or you just talk to people, things sort of happen. Like it, it doesn't follow any sort of like law of nature, but it's happened to me and it's happened to like over and over again, the people I talked to on this podcast. It's like you took a chance, you went to Norway, things started to happen. Uh, and I really think that with your personality and your story and the way you tell stories, the more that you continue the blog and the more countries that you sort of accumulate in your experiences, I could see you, you know, being a, a well-known storyteller within the world of like the, the travel writing industry. Uh, and I really, I really hope that happens because I think you've got a really cool and inspiring story. Um, so I want to thank you again for allowing me to use my platform to, to share your, uh, your story and your voice with my listeners today. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm gonna remember. Like I said, Timmy V, the first guy, <laughs> to, the, the first guy to ever have me on a podcast. So this, this is my very first interview, very first everything. And I mean, I would tell people, you know, travel, see the world. You know, uh, we got Meek Mill, Rick Ross, and Jay Z. Jay Z, they said, "What's free? Free is when the TV ain't controlling what we see." You know, so go see another country, go see another people. You know, if you have a prejudice in your mind or your heart against a particular type of person or somewhere from what country or whatever, well, go to the country. You know, that's one person from that country. If you had a view on Americans based on one person when there's 320 million people in America, I mean, I would hope that you would be like, hey, you know, let me go check it out. So go check out these countries. Go see the world. The world is a big place. There's 200, over 200 countries in the world. And we live, everyone just lives in one of them. Go see the world. Well, that's, uh, I think that's a great way to end it. Um, so thanks again, Rob. Uh, really happy to be able to share your story. Thank you so much. Have me on again. But in a couple of years, we'll see where I've, where I've gone and where I've grown and what's happened in my life. Hell yeah. That is a wrap on episode number 182 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much to Rob. What a cool guy with wild stories. I really would uh, implore you to go to his website and read more about his backstory. Uh, his stories from the penitentiary are really crazy and his pictures and his stories from his travels are really, really inspiring. So 
really glad to have him on for this episode and happy to be able to share his story with all of you. Should be a busy week again. Today is Sunday. Looks like I'll have another three or four this week. So stay, you know, stay subscribed, stay on the lookout for some episodes in the coming days. Okay, Voyagers, thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, please take care of each other. Catch you next time.